Welcome to episode 68 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle. And I'm Lee. It's July 1st, so happy July to all our listeners. And in today's episode, we're going to discuss the persecution of minorities during disease outbreaks and in the Middle Ages more generally. Our guest for today is Safir Barzilai, who is a postdoctoral fellow at Ben-Gurion University of the Negev in Israel. He is the author of the forthcoming book with the University of Penn Press entitled Poisoned Wells, Accusation, Persecution, and Minorities in Medieval Europe from 1321 to 1422. Safir received his PhD from Columbia University in 2016 and has worked in both the United States and Israel since then. He has published articles on various topics, including well poisonings, the Crusades, and on environmental history topics such as the water supply of cities. More broadly, he is interested in questions of social, cultural, and religious history in Europe during the 12th to 15th centuries. And Safir is particularly interested in the development of the common perceptions of Jews and Christians and their change throughout the High Middle Ages. So hi, Safir. Hi, good evening, or good morning. Yes, for, for both of us. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. So, Merle, this is really a topic that was a huge deal early on in the COVID pandemic, and I'm thinking specifically about stereotyping and persecution of minorities, but has since, at least in my mind, become less central to ongoing conversations. So the debates were about wet markets and Chinese eating habits as sites of the COVID spillover effect, but these were eventually debunked. But the anti-Asian rhetoric has never gone away at all, but just emerges again and again when new ideas circulate. And here I'm thinking about the lab leak theory that had a number of articles on it recently that, again, that the anti-Asian sentiment in the United States and elsewhere. Yeah, I think those are key barometers of how these ideas circulated in the past and continue to circulate now. I mean, I remember reading a number of articles in prominent venues by historians one in particular in the New York Times I'm thinking about, about the persecution of Jews during the Black Death as comparable to some of the anti-Asian persecutions then happening. It was one of the, as I think you pointed out, Lee, key touchstone tropes, I guess we might say, early on that everyone, or at least every historian, seemed to feel the need to talk about in the context of COVID. But I think the talk today should be useful to understand how these ideas were both already in circulation before a major pandemic of the past and how they built on it and then continued afterward, which perhaps also might have some contemporary resonances. But first, I have to say, Lee, congrats on finishing teaching. How do you feel? Yeah, yeah I finished teaching a couple of days ago. There definitely is less work to be done, at least now, at least this week. So I'm glad about that. COVID is continuing to slowly but surely, I guess, grow here, here in Israel. I think over the past few days, we've had about 250 or so new infections per day, which is a small but significant increase on what we had when I last recorded the, the previous episode. We had several university events yesterday, and people were only partially masked, so that's already interesting enough. And today I took my students, after class actually, to visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre here in Jerusalem. And there as well, I've seen only partial masks. So maybe let's say a third of the people or so were masked today. So yeah, that's how things are going on here. So Lee, are you indulging your newfound 
alcohol taste? I know, as we've mentioned in the podcast, you used to only drink red wine, but are you drinking now every night in celebration of being done? Yeah, actually not. I have finished the semester a couple of days ago, but both yesterday and today have still been days in which I did have to work, but tomorrow is going to be the day in which I'm going to relax a bit more. So I'm looking forward to that. And there are also going to be two Euro games tomorrow. So even better. And two good Euro games tomorrow, actually. So I'm looking forward to that. But what about you, Merle? What are you doing? I can see that you're back home, finally. Yeah, we're back from my sister's place. And then we spent a couple of days in Princeton seeing friends before the people who were there moved to other places. So it was a good time in Princeton. Had some drinks with a former teacher of ours. So that was very nice, too. I will say driving with kids is still less than fun. I know this is something you haven't really done that much, Lee. But I will admit that now that they're a little older, we've allowed them to, you know, watch one movie while they are in the car. And so that makes it a little bit easier now, I have to say. We used to have, you know, a no screen time thing. And now because they get a little bit when they're home with us, I figured it was okay when we drove. So do they actually watch a full-time movie while they drive? While you drive for them, I guess? Yeah. So actually, it's interesting. Seven years ago, when we bought our car, we bought one that had a DVD player built into it. Not because we wanted it. I mean, we'd literally never used it before, but just because it came with the version when we bought it, we bought a used car, so it came with it. And so now they actually use it. So they watched, you know, such great things as A Bug's Life and Thomas the Train. There was some other movie that they watched that I had to listen to as I drove across traffic on the GW Bridge, which was just an awful movie, but I had to listen to it because I was stuck in traffic. What about Paw Patrol? I mean, I know it's not a movie, but do they watch that? Well, as I think I've mentioned multiple times in this podcast about your favorite show, Lee, they had never seen it before, but they actually watched an episode when they were at my uh, sister's house. So now they think they know it's a real thing. And they also watched an episode of Pete the Cat. So now they know that's a real thing aside from just a book. Well, sounds like you're on the way to getting them addicted to TV, Merle. Good job. Great. Thanks, Lee. And Safir, are you somewhere else in Israel? Is thing, are yeah. things different? I'm in a Tel Aviv suburb, but uh, it's such a small country that it doesn't make any difference. It's basically one big city. <laughs> so no, no major differences than what Lee described. Are you also done teaching or were you teaching this past semester? I'm, no, I wasn't teaching this year, luckily, because some of it would be Zoom and some of it would be in all kinds of some of the students in class and some not in class. And that would be very, very difficult to manage. So I'm actually glad to not be teaching this year. Hopefully something will uh, come up for the next one. Is your sense that people aren't really interested or don't really want to know about or hear about COVID anymore here? Here in Israel, I mean? Well, I think people thought that they were done and they tried to get their life back together and back on track. And it's very difficult mentally to come back from that. And I think this probably explains some of what you saw with uh, people avoiding masks or just acting like everything is as it used to be three or four weeks ago, because it's easier. It's just we all want to think that things are back to normal and it's not going to change back. 
So we've covered it before in a few episodes, but I think it's been a little while. So for the sake of listeners who haven't listened to the previous episode, could you give us a very brief overview of what the Black Death was? So the Black Death was a disease that actually originates in rodents. It still exists in rodent populations uh, throughout the world. And in the Middle Ages, in the 14th century, it started in Central Asia around the modern day Mongolia. And it spread through rodents and through the fleas that lived on rats, mice, and so forth, slowly from Central Asia to the south towards China and uh, westward slowly until it reached Europe in early 1348, first to Italy, and then it traveled to other Mediterranean ports, France, Spain, and then made its way into the continent. I'm not an epidemiologist. Most of what I do does not deal with the medical aspects of the Black Death. I basically get as a given that there was a major mortality rate of somewhere between 25 and 35, 40% mortality of urban population. And I start from there. And usually what I deal with is the social implications of the mortality or of the plague or of rumors about the plague. So I care about epidemiology, but most of what I do is social history of the plague. So in a sense, if I understand correctly, the let's say the mortality rate or the number of deaths, the number of bodies doesn't actually matter to you all that much, right? I mean, if you're much more interested in responses and so on. Yes, I assume that the crisis has a dynamic that is not necessarily directly related to mortality rates. So a plague that kills 15% of the population is scary enough. I'm not sure that there is a major social difference between a reaction to a plague that kills 15% of the population and a plague that kills 50% of the population. In the first stages, when we look at the Black Death, we have to remember that there are recurring episodes of the plague every seven to 12 years. So when we look in the long run, it makes a major difference what the mortality rates is because it affects the way the population recovers. How long does it take before the population comes back to the levels that were before the Black Death? But in the short run, in the reaction to the first outbreak of the Black Death, the times that uh, well poisoning accusations against minorities happened, I don't think it makes a major difference. That actually brings us to a different question. So to tie things up with how we've started, so we've been hearing, again, particularly in the context of COVID, that minorities were scapegoated in the past, and maybe one of the most commonly cited examples has been the Jews during the Black Death. So could you tell us a bit about how Jews were persecuted during the pandemic? Yes, but let me start by saying that I have some issues with the idea of scapegoating. And one of the major goals of the book is to suggest a different framework to think about the persecution of minorities during plagues and during the Black Death. The problem with scapegoating is that it assumes that the persecution of minorities during crises just happens. There is a crisis, someone has to be blamed, the persecutors find a minority, Jews, lepers, heretics, Muslims any kind of minority, and the first minority around will be blamed for the crisis. But when we look at historical examples, this is not always the case. 
There are places in Europe, Italy is the most salient example, but also Castile and some places, Austria, for example, that has plague, has high mortality rates. It has Jewish communities. All of these areas have major Jewish communities and there is no persecution. There, there are no well-poisoning accusations or there are very few accusations and these either don't start or they stop very quickly. So it's not something that just happens. It happens only under a specific political and social circumstances. And one of the major points of the book is trying to explain what these circumstances are. So that's maybe a good segue. Could you pick one of the places geographically you work on and give us examples of where this happens for a particular reason, and then we can expand from there? So we can choose a place like the city of Strasbourg in Alsace. Today it's in France. In the Middle Ages, it was part of the German Empire. And there is a major Jewish community there, one of the largest in Europe, a very rich community. And what happens in Strasbourg is that even before the plague in 1332, there is a revolution. And during that revolution, the old nobility is being forced out to a degree from the city council and lower nobility in uh, cooperation with the guilds and the artisans take over the council. And what happens during the Black Death is that rumors about the mortality reach Strasbourg and they start to investigate well-poisoning accusations against Jews and against other minorities, marginalized Christians and so forth. And they don't start persecuting the Jews immediately. They hear about the rumors, they start investigating, and the Jews are only being executed six months later. And the reason is that the council that is made of the lower nobility and the artisans has a political and economic interest of defending the Jews, and they do that. But what happens is that their opposition, the bishop and the higher nobility, use well-poisoning accusation as kind of a political leverage to create pressure to uh, get rid of the Jews. And what happens is that they actually leverage the issue of all poisoning accusations to create counter-revolution and get rid of the new council and take back their power. So what happens is that Jews are being caught in the middle between two political coalitions within Strasbourg. So the question is what we have here. The plague is important, yes. But the political situation in Strasbourg before the plague is also equally important in determining the fate of the Jews and what exactly is the dynamic of the persecution that happens there. So if I can ask a quick follow-up question, why is it that the Jews are chosen as kind of this pivot leverage point or group? Why not another group or why not something else altogether? In Strasbourg, it is very clear because they are the largest minority. It's a community of probably over a thousand Jews. They are very rich. They are well connected to other communities and to the emperor. It's a major political issue, the persecution of the Jews. It's not a minority that you can just get rid of and have no political consequences. But it's not only Jews that are being persecuted during the Black Death. The accusations actually start not in Germany, but closer to the Mediterranean, in Provence and uh, in southern France, Languedoc, and they start with Christians, with marginalized Christians, poor Christians, foreigners, vagabonds, who are first accused of well-poisoning accusations, 
and only later the accusations transferred to Jews. So it's not only Jews, it's not always Jews in different locations. It depends on the political circumstances, and the book is trying to give a more complicated picture than just uh, pointing to the Jews. Okay, so that had a lot of ideas that I'm definitely interested in and that I would want to follow up on. But before we do that, maybe we should try to nuance things a bit, or at least I'm interested in trying to nuance things a bit. So when we talk about Jews, let's say in the Strasbourg example, are we talking about the entire community? I mean, you mentioned executions, for example. I mean, I'm pretty sure that they did not execute the entire community, but are we today using Jews as the group that is blamed collectively for all this or the group that some of its members are blamed individually for actions such as well poisonings and so on? And I mean, obviously, this is just a specific case study, but I'm interested in whether, again, maybe not scapegoating, but these accusations are directed against individuals or entire communities. Yes. So that's a good question. One of the things that happened during the Black Death is that well poisoning accusations starts as accusations against either individuals or small groups of people who are able to come together and poison wells, neighbors, people who know each other, family members. But as they develop, the idea of conspiracy of all the Jews were part of the plot takes hold or actually is promoted by certain political agents who wants to promote the accusations. So if, for example, in a specific place, only some Jews are accused of wall poisoning, it doesn't mean that it's relevant for other places as well. If, for example, the Jews of Switzerland, of modern-day Switzerland, were accused of wall poisoning, it's not necessarily relevant for the Jews of Strasbourg. But when officials develop the idea of well-poisoning accusations, they develop the idea of conspiracy, so they can say that all of the Jews are involved. And by the time the Jews of Strasbourg are executed, this idea of universal conspiracy is already very well developed, and they actually do execute the entire community. Unlike in earlier cases in 1348, where they execute individual suspects. So they just executed a thousand people, the entire community, yes. and I guess took yes. over all their property and stuff. Yes. So in Strasbourg, we know that the property was taken over by the city and given to people who are closer to the council. So some clerics were strong, were had a strong political position in the city. And you have to remember that the execution happened, I mentioned that right after the revolution, that actually changed the council to a new political structure. So what they do, they take the money from the Jews and they actually give it to people who can support the new council, artisans who can support the new council and so forth. And we see that in other places as well. When Jews or other minorities, we see that with the lepers, when, when lepers are accused of well poisoning in France, they do the same thing. They execute the lepers of an entire city. They take over all of their property, mostly real estate, and then they divide it between local nobles or people who has political sway and, and can create political pressure to get this property. So I guess the natural question is that was one city in one context, and we're not going to run through everywhere this happens. 
But in other places, should we also be looking for these local political contexts, or do they end up being kind of ways in which people see this happening and start emulating it kind of because they see the power this has? Okay, so the political context is vital, especially in the German Empire. Different cities has different social dynamics, different political dynamics, different privileges in comparison to other cities, different relations with the emperor or the king, and so forth. So the dynamic is very different from one city to the other. However, there are some common lines that I can talk about or common trends. One trend is that the Jews are more likely to be persecuted in cities that are, one, more autonomous and are not directly controlled by the emperor. So the more a city is is autonomous, the less politically stable it is. The more these struggles between the high nobility, the low nobility, the artisans, and so forth, are likely to develop into a revolt or a crisis of some sort, which can also cause the persecution of Jews or legitimate the persecution of Jews. Cities that are more stable are less likely to persecute Jews. For example, in Regensburg, in Bavaria, the local council, uh, when they heard of war poisoning accusations, the council came together, actually brought to the city hall or to one place the entire city's uh, nobility and had them seal a document that says that no one is allowed to hurt the Jews and everyone who would do that will be subject to penalty by the council. And they get all of the nobility of the city to do that. And it actually works. They create enough political sway behind a coalition that protects the Jews. And Jews are not, as far as we know, are not persecuted in Regensburg during the Black Death. So it doesn't have to happen the way it did in Strasbourg, but that is the majority of cases, I would say, or the majority of cases that we can analyze. So let's stay with this Strasbourg example, again, as a case study. How do Jews react? And both the Jews in Strasbourg before they're being executed, if they try to do anything, or maybe other Jewish communities in neighboring cities who hear about all this. I wish I could say, I don't have sources from Strasbourg during the persecution. I have later sources, what Jews write about it or what the survivors or people from other communities write about it. I can only assume that a strong Jewish community that has ties to the council must have used their uh, political power to fight off well-positioned accusations. But what happens is that the Jews are usually dependent on uh, defense from the emperor, from the king, actually. And in 1348, there is a civil war in Germany. And the emperor who is leading and is about to become the emperor of entire Germany actually is in a pretty weak political position and is trying not to get the cities too angry. So what usually happens, the emperor Karl IV write to many cities and basically forbids them to execute their Jews. And then they do it anyway. And a few months later, he says, okay, you're absolved. You can keep the money because he need their political support in his uh, little civil war. So the Jews of Strasbourg, I imagine, try their hardest to keep their uh, political status, but it was a bad situation. The plague in tandem with the civil war was just a very, very difficult political situation to navigate. So aside from, you know, Jews being persecuted, were there other groups? I mean, you mentioned kind of 
heretical Christians or lepers or others. Were there other examples of similar accusations happening there, or are these groups not as visible of minority that it was harder to group them all together? Okay, I'll answer in two parts. If we talk about the Black Death, so first, as I mentioned, it starts with Christians of lower political class or lower social class, poor, vagabonds, foreigners. Later, after the Jews are being persecuted in many of the cities of Germany, the plague doesn't stop. The plague continues to erupt. And then we have a second wave of persecution, less extensive, but still we have a second wave of persecutions against converts. So Jews who converted either before the plague or as an attempt to save their life during the first wave of persecution are being persecuted when the plague continues to spread. So we have that. And the second part of my answer has to do with minorities that are being persecuted before the Black Death. So Lee mentioned, I think, in the beginning that well-posing accusations started before the plague. And in 1321, we have the first major wave of well-poisoning accusations in France and Aragon. And the major minority to be persecuted is lepers. Muslims are also persecuted a little bit in Aragon. Of course, there are no Muslim communities in France. And Jews maybe in the South a little bit. They are converts. But the major minority to be persecuted are lepers. And Jews are persecuted, but not as much as lepers. So I would say that actually well-poisoning accusation starts with lepers rather than with Jews. So what exactly did Christians accuse Jews of? Was this literal well-poisoning? It was always the well-poison. I mean, that somehow Jews either got, bought, made poisons and dumped those poisons into a communal well that is owned or used by the good Christians of a particular city. So all the Christians supposedly got sick and all the Jews supposedly did not get sick. Is this the kind of broad accusation, the common accusation that they used to accuse Jews and other minorities of? Yes. And it's a kind of a weird accusation because you have to keep in mind that by the 14th century, most of the cities in Europe are relying on communal water systems. So by the 12th century, uh, most of the cities are relying on individual water systems. So people have in their yard their own well or their own water hole that is based on draining water from roofs, rooftops or things like that. Very simple mechanisms that allow to collect water. But with the urbanization of the 13th and 14th centuries, cities are becoming larger and more crowded and you can't rely anymore on the individual water systems, you have to start creating public water systems. And governments, urban governments do that. And by the 14th century, these urban water systems are so common that everyone rely on them. So if you poison the public system, you can poison the entire city fairly easily. The only problem is that Jews are also relying on the public systems. As far as we can tell, Jews or most Jews do not have private wells. So even some Christian writers point this out, that there is a problem that with the accusation, with the actual narrative of the accusation, because the people who promote it have to explain 
what juice do? How do they drink if they poison all of the other water sources? And I think this is part of the reasons that the accusations don't really last after the 15th century, but maybe we'll talk about it later. There is something about them that is problematic even as they develop. Were there other things that in this context, Jews as a community were accused of doing that people tried and didn't quite stick for other reasons? When I think about well poisoning accusations, the comparison that comes to mind very, very quickly is either a ritual murder accusations or host desecration accusations. And what characterizes these two accusations is that they have a very, very strong religious narrative at their base. So uh, ritual murder is an attack against a Christian boy. Basically, Jews are accused of recreating the crucifixion of Christ using a Christian boy or killing a Christian boy as part of a ritual. And when it comes to host desecration accusations, Jews are accused of taking the host that uh, people receive during the mass at the church and desecrating it, stabbing it, throwing it into boiling water and so forth. Now, during the 13th century, the idea that the host actually represent the body of Christ become more and more prevalent, and the Jews are presented as the enemies of Christ. And that's why these two accusations have very, very strong power as anti-Jewish propaganda, because they have very strong religious ideas behind them. This is not the case with well-poisoning accusations. Uh, Well-poisoning accusations are secular accusations. They are not an attack against Christ or against the Christian community. They are an attack against the public, uh, writ large everyone who drinks water. And it's an impersonal attack. You poison, you don't know who's going to drink from the poison well. So you basically attack the public. So it's impersonal. It doesn't have a strong religious narrative. And I think this is one of the reasons that it doesn't stick over time. Ritual murder accusations continue even into the modern age. And even host desecration accusations continue into the 16th century very successfully. Right. But there are also other differences. So, for example, I mean, all three of these accusations would essentially be done by individuals, right? So a host desecration or ritual murder may be done by a few individuals, I guess. And even well poisoning. I mean, I guess they accused the specific person or a specific person smallish group of people, but between that and massacring an entire community, I mean, there's some difference here. So how do you justify massacring even the women and children, which I guess would be the easiest case to argue against? So first of all, when it comes to ritual murder, really, in most cases that we know, a single person or a few individuals are accused. When it comes to host desecrations, we have these waves of violence that starts in the late 13th century, and they recur mostly in Germany, but in other places as well, during the first half of the 14th century. So this idea of an accusation that causes persecution against all Jews or many Jews is not unique for well-poisoning accusations. But when it comes to well-poisoning accusations, they definitely cause wider persecution than any other accusations or any other medieval accusation. And the reason is that this idea of conspiracy, all of the Jews knew, all of the Jews cooperated, comes to the fore and being replicated 
as the accusations develop. Every time that there is a trial against the Jews and there is an investigation and officials report to each other about what they did and what they concluded, there is always this narrative of all of the Jews knew they all were complicit in the plot. And one of the reasons is that, as I said, if you poison the main water system, everyone who drinks from that system would die, in theory. Jews, Christians, no matter who. So there is basically no way of poisoning wells without letting everyone in the community who you don't want to be poisoned to know that you poison the wells. So all of the Jews must have known according to this narrative. Right, but obviously many Jews die as well, right? Especially once we get to the plague and so on. So how how is that explained? And is there any evidence? Do they actually find, produce, show something that is supposed to be the poison with which the Jews supposedly poisoned the entire city? Okay, so one answer is that in most of the cities, especially in Germany, the persecution of Jews happened when they hear rumors about the coming of the plague and the high mortality rates and of well poisoning accusations in other places. So they actually, in many cases, execute the Jews before the plague actually reached their town. So they don't know that the Jews will die from the plague the same as Christians, okay? And they do create evidence. The strongest evidence that they create is protocols of investigations. They basically, uh, when they try to investigate well poisoning accusations, they gather uh, suspects, either Jews or Christians, they investigate them or the authorities investigate them. They create a record of what they admitted to, often under torture. They take this record, they make copies of it, and they send it to other cities. So basically what would happen in Strasbourg, they would start investigating well-poisoning accusations. They sent letters to other cities asking, what do you know about this? And they got back all of these confessions signed by notaries, an official document that says that people admitted to poisoning wells. So they're basically getting a lot of evidence, or we know, or we can understand that these were forced confessions, and these are basically false evidence. But they do get a lot of information confirming the existence of well poisoning plot from many different places at the same time. So it's actually pretty scary if you're thinking about this from like a council's perspective. So you hear about all these other cities in which lots of people die and the Jews are apparently confessing to poisoning wells. And you can't really tell if that's true or not. But I mean, it's a pretty significant dilemma you're supposed to face as I mean, are you going to do something? Are you not going to do something? And maybe not doing something again within their own worldview, which I obviously don't subscribe to, but I think we've seen even in COVID that in cases where we people don't really have all the information or we don't have reliable information, we make some pretty bad decisions. Obviously, not as bad decisions as we're talking about here, but it's still maybe something to keep in mind, I guess. Yes, absolutely. And the amount of information that medieval administrators receive, I think for me as a, someone looking from a modern perspective, was really, really impressive when I actually got to the archives and saw how many letters, how many records of investigation they have in a single city. They get a lot of information and fairly quickly. And some of them just admit that they are confused. For example, officials in Cologne 
write a stress verb three times and ask for information. And every time they sound more confused, they say, there are so many rumors flying around. We get so much conflicted information from different places. Do you have any actual evidence to what's going on? And they just don't know. And what happens in Colombia is that they decide not to do anything before they have concrete evidence. So they keep protecting their Jews until there is popular uprising and the actual people of the city, rather than the authorities, attack local Jews and destroy the Jewish neighborhood. So sometimes officials would try not to do anything, but they were not always successful. They could be some kind of a revolt or a popular uprising that would force them into action. And I remind you again, we are talking about not only a time of plague, but a time of civil war. It's a very, very, very bad time to not pick sides. So you've described a situation in a number of places and a lot of really particular reasons why these persecutions happen. Do you have a sense of why in kind of a public discourse, we might say, you know, some of these New York Times articles I've referenced at the beginning, that it is a straightforward narrative of plague breaks out, Jews are blamed, Jews get killed, right? How has that become the narrative that we tell rather than some of the things you're talking about now? I think it's an honest mistake because the chroniclers write that there was a plague, that the Jews were responsible for poisoning wells and causing the plague and therefore were persecuted. And that's the narrative that you get from one chronicler after another. And we have at least 40 chronicles from uh, 1348 that I've found. And you have the same narrative in literature even in a little bit of the medical professionals who write about the plague mention the persecution of Jews. So you get the same narrative over and over again in different sources. One of the things that they try to do in the book is actually put these narratives aside because they were written after the fact. They were written after people already decided that the Jews were responsible for the plague. And this is what they communicated. What they try to do in the book is actually follow the documents that were created during the plague before a decision was made to persecute the Jews, how the decision was made. This is what I want to know. So I follow communication between officials. I follow these trial records that I discussed. I'm trying to figure out in real time what people knew and how they made their decisions. I think taking the narrative that was developed after everyone agreed that the Jews were guilty is not going to help us understand the dynamic of how the accusations developed. How much these accusations depend on ideas of public health or, or medical ideas that existed at the time? Are these even in conversation or is it just poison, like this generic poison that could kill us all and we don't even know what it is, it doesn't matter. Let's just get rid of these people. I think it's not a direct conversation. If you look through medical treatises that discuss the plague, you'll find very few references to well-positioning accusations. There are a few, I think something around between five and seven, but we're talking about 300 different texts that discuss the plague. Some of them are really, really short, but most of them do not discuss well-positioning anyway. And most of the explanations of doctors to the plague has to do with astronomic explanations, explanations that has to do with the balance of humors, all kinds of uh, concepts that are typical of medieval medicine. And when it comes to well poisoning, there are very, very good reasons to think that it doesn't make sense because 
it cannot explain universal mortality, as they call it, unless you assume a very, very wide conspiracy. So in most medical writing or medical literature, you will find a completely different narrative. In most cases, they simply ignore the idea of uh, well poisoning. They just don't discuss it. Do committees or administrators ask doctors to come and testify at these cases, or are doctors, again, not part of the conversation? I didn't find any doctors in trial records as witnesses, other than a Jewish doctor who was accused of poisoning, so he obviously had to testify. But they don't ask doctors how the poison works. But sometimes you find reference to doctors who were asked to help to create the poison. Obviously, this is part of the narrative. It's part of the accusation. But uh, the accusers sometimes thought that it would make a better story to talk about the doctor that helped the poisoners. But again, these are three or four cases. It's not very common. So one thing I'm curious about to put this in an even bigger picture is do these ideas of well poisonings depend on you know, a medieval persecuting society, as one famous uh, book has called it? I mean, is this part of that same package that's happening? To a degree it is, because you see the idea of well poisoning accusation actually transferring it from one minority to another. In 1321, it starts with lepers, and then it moves to Jews and to uh, Muslims, to some degree. During the first outbreak of the Black Death, it starts with marginalized Christians, and it slowly or gradually it moves to Jews. But I would say that this process does not happen naturally. It's not that all minorities are the same. Uh, in some places, some minorities are targeted. In others, they are not. In some places, you have transfer of the accusations that happen later than other places. In some places, it never happens. So. It's not that it's so easy to take an image that was created for lepers and just transfer it to Jews. You have to adjust the story. One of the interesting things that happened before the Black Death in 1321 is that the story of well poisoning develops around lepers. And the story is that lepers and Muslims conspire together to poison wells. And Jews are not part of the story for two and a half, three months. And only at some point does political actors that have interests try to insert the Jews into the story. And they have to work pretty hard. They have to create a middleman between the Muslims and the lepers, a middleman that doesn't necessarily have to be there. The narrative actually makes more sense without the Jews. But there was some kind of political action to put the Jews into this picture. So persecuting society, yes, minorities are persecuted more and the institutions are interested in persecuting minorities. But it doesn't happen automatically. It's not that you have a persecuted society and from there things just continue to develop on their own. Great. So maybe as a last question for this interview, I would ask you about the voices that do speak up against these persecutions. So you mentioned some of these groups or individuals, let's say the king or so on, but I'm a bit more interested in local People, so people within the community who speak up against these accusations and try to argue against them. So could you maybe say a bit about who these people might be and maybe say a bit about what kind of arguments would they make? Would they make, let's say, moral arguments? Would they make more religious arguments? Would they try to find logic in these stories? Would they make arguments for compassion? I mean, what would they say, if at all? 
So I have to say that most of the voices that I found in the sources are institutional voices because they leave records. So when the Pope writes against wealth poisoning accusations, I actually can find the letter or the book. I know that there were also local sources. For example, in Regensburg, a local scholar, Conrad of Megenburg, writes against the accusations, and he has a list of issues that he has with the accusations. So he starts by saying, we are on the city of Regensburg, located on the Danube River. So when people hear about wealth poisoning accusations, they actually start drinking from the river. Obviously, when the plague arrives to the city, it doesn't do them much good. So he says, if the river is also poisoned, it doesn't make sense because the river is too wide and it flows all the time. You can't poison a river. So he says, for that reason, the accusations doesn't make sense. Or he asks, what would the Jews drink if they poison all of the wells? And so forth. He has a few questions like that. There are also other voices who call to protect the Jews or of chroniclers who are actually shocked by the persecution of Jews and call it barbaric or inhumane. We have voices like that. But during the first outbreak of the Black Death, they are not the majority, they are the minority. I think what happens is that as the plague returns every seven to 12 years, these voices are becoming stronger and stronger because the persecution of minorities is not actually helpful in preventing the plague. And the more people see that the plague returns, the more these voices of the people who claim this does not make sense gain stronger political position or even just a logical position. It just makes sense. So I think that that's a good place to wrap this up as we move toward the end of your story. So, Zafira, I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much, Zafira. So I thought that was a really interesting interview because, you know, at most basic level, what Safir pointed out was that persecution doesn't always happen, right? Some areas with large minority populations, as you pointed out at the very beginning, didn't have persecutions versus other ones had fairly extensive ones like Strasbourg, as you pointed out. Yeah, and I think this reminds us again for the, I don't know how many time, that we should nuance. We should nuance the ways in which we think about these broader processes or large-scale events, let's say. Yeah, it was interesting how Safir pointed out when the detailed taste of Strasbourg that he gave us that Jews were used as kind of a pivot, right? They were like the object in which there were larger political debates playing out so that this concentration on Jews and well poisoning had its political use. I'm sure there were personal uses, economic uses, and others also involved in that process, but that they really were this useful tool for other people in the city to fight out their political battles. I mean, on one hand, yes. But on the other hand, again, I'm trying to think about those, let's say, administrators or or councilmen of a city having to make these kinds of decisions, right? So yes, of course, in some areas, there were very obvious political economic reasons to persecute. But I'm not sure if we could generalize that. I mean, we probably cannot actually generalize this for all cases. No, I completely agree. I'm just saying what was interesting was how this plays out in different places, which is why I then asked him about different locations, right? I think one of the talking points that 
I've seen crop up during COVID is that disease has this almost trans-historical, ahistorical thing that happens in which minority groups are persecuted, right? I mean, that's like a standard talking point now. And what he points out is that this is actually a far more complex process and that the best example of this happening, which is often cited as the Black Death, is actually a deeply problematic one. Yes, and I would actually follow up on this and point out the extreme reactions that we've seen during this episode, right? So again, take the example of Strasbourg, the entire population, 1,000 Jews of a city were all executed. And this is both very, very different from the present day experience of maybe accusations, maybe anti-Asian stereotypes or bias or something like that, which is bad and can be horrible. But again, we're not talking about wholesale massacre here. And it's also different from more or less any other case that we've heard on this podcast, which I think is notable, actually. I mean, there is nothing, nothing, completely nothing that even comes close to this, let's say, on the Justinianic plague that both of us know best. But I don't think we've seen anything similar to this in other cases as well, right? So yes, there have been stereotypes, there have been biases, maybe, maybe some persecutions, but not entire massacres. Yeah, I think it goes to show, again, the power of the Black Death as the pandemic par excellence, as opposed to any other, and how much that has shaped our narratives, our ideas on what a pandemic should or shouldn't do or lead to. Yeah, so you're actually saying how unique was the Black Death? Was the Black Death unique, a one of a kind throughout human history? There is nothing that even came close on one hand. Or was it just kind of like a standard pandemic, maybe killed a bit more people than other pandemics, but maybe it's not that different. And I think at least what we've seen in this episode, based on the discussion that we've been having now, is that we're, I'm assuming at least, leaning more towards the Black Death being unique rather than the Black Death being a quintessential pandemic. Yeah, I think that's actually come up not just on this episode, but obviously this one, since it focused on the Black Death but also others we've had on whether it be plague or a whole bunch of different diseases we've talked with people about, right? That the Black Death really stands as the outlier rather than the measuring stick for all the other ones. Right. And that obviously has implications as to really managing our expectations about what, as you said earlier today, and as we've, I think, discussed on a couple of episodes in the past, of what pandemics should or should not do what they actually do or do not do. Now, another point I had here is really thinking about this from like a more impersonal perspective, right? So what we're seeing here, what Safir was discussing is a situation in which, again, you as an individual, as maybe an elite in a city, so like a councilman or, or mayor or something like that, you hear all these rumors and as he mentioned, I think he mentioned the people at Köln. You keep hearing all these things. You have no idea what is true and what is not true. You're trying to get the basic details, the basic facts, and you just cannot do that. And in a sense, I think it didn't really happen as extremely during COVID. But I think that at least some of us did get a sense of this anxiety, for lack of a better term, maybe extreme anxiety of not knowing what we should or should not do. And once you're in that kind of position, once you, we as people, 
we could take some extreme measures. And again, granted, extreme measures today are, I guess, safer, for lack of a better term, than extreme measures in the past. But we still would do things that would seem completely illogical, even to us, like after this situation ends. So you're telling me, Lee, you may have wiped down your groceries with bleach? Tell me more about this. <laughs> you know, Merle, I actually never did. That never happened to me. But I know other people who have. Maybe you can tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, maybe someday I can. But no, on a serious note, that is something that myself and multiple members of my extended family did do. Because as you pointed out, you don't know what will or won't get you COVID in the early days of March, just as people didn't know about the Black Death. Aside from the fact, they obviously didn't know the medical reason, but it just becomes something you just don't know what to do or whom to trust. Yeah, and then the question would be, again, maybe not in the present day context, but the question would be, how far would you be willing to go with the uncertainty and how much would you be willing to do? Which we could maybe leave as an open question unless you want to try to answer that. No, I'll just say, since I was commenting on problematical trans-historical ideas early on, I do think that if there's one fairly common denominator of many of these pandemics that I do think is the case, is that in the early parts of them, until you know maybe something about what's happening, or at least are more adapted to what's happening, the fear, the lack of information, the rumors, the unreliable information, I think that is very present in most of the pandemics we've talked to anyone about. So, you know, I mean, when you think about it that way, maybe the best, I guess, generic strategy for a pandemic, I mean, following your thought is to just disconnect, disconnect from society as, as much as you can have as little to do with other people and just wait for other people to figure things out and then kind of like transition back into society. Yeah, I think probably the answer is go hide in a cave or be a hermit in the you know Negev desert if you want, Lee. Yeah, I'll definitely start looking for caves for the next pandemic, which hopefully will not happen, but probably will at some point. So moving on to kind of transition to the end of this episode, Merle, the 4th of July is coming up. So do you have any special plans, Any anything going on in Annapolis for the 4th of July? So at the moment, I think we're going to have some people over, some neighbors for a, a barbecue in our backyard. So very, you know, classic 4th of July. And I believe there's a parade downtown. And I assume some fireworks somewhere. I haven't looked this up, but I guess we will do those two things. Obviously, last year was a little different. And you, Lee, do you celebrate the 4th of July? I know you're obviously not in the U.S. anymore, but, you know, did all your time in the U.S. spill over and now you, you know, wear American flag shorts and run through the streets of Jerusalem? Yes, I do keep the 4th of July in my heart and I fondly remember my time in the United States and all the, the fireworks and barbecues that I've had there. And I guess that on this more positive note, Merle getting ready to celebrate his Independence Day, we can conclude this episode. We'd like to thank our usual sponsors, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem and the Page Center for funding us. 
And as usual, our sound editor, Amitai Barlavi, and our webmaster, Verda Kanati, who've both been great over the many past episodes. Now, as a reminder, we would be very grateful if you could rate us on iTunes or any other service that you use to listen to this podcast. That would be very helpful for us in getting more audience, getting more people to listen to this. So if you enjoy us, we would be very grateful if you could do that. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and maybe send Lee some American flag shorts so he can run through the streets of Jerusalem. <laughs>